1: Oh, thank you so much, Ayala. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Update on Neuroendocrine Tumors, or NET. And today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And uh, we're really delighted with um, your response to the program today. Um, We have on the program today over 481 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, China, India, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela, so a bit of a global call as well. Now, today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology and Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. We have wonderful speakers today, and I just wanted to kind of let you all know that our speaker is going to be addressing – Uh, Well, actually, when I introduce them, you'll know what they will be addressing in terms of the topic, so I'm going to proceed by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Diane Reedy-Lagunas, and Dr. Lagunas is a medical oncologist, gastrointestinal oncology service from Wollstone-Kettering Cancer Center. She's also assistant professor of medicine, Joan and Stanford I. Weill Department of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College, and she's a member of neuroendocrine task force and biospecimen Consortium for the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Lagunas will be presenting an overview of neuroendocrine tumors in general, and she will also be focusing specifically on gastrointestinal tract and pancreas um, neuroendocrine tumors. She'll be discussing diagnosis and staging, treatment options, the role of clinical trials, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Reedy Lagunas.
2: Thank you so much for that warm introduction. So, as you said, I would hope uh, on the agenda today to discuss neuroendocrine tumors and the heterogeneity of this disease. One of the big challenges is that we're an uncommon cancer, but um, many patients have many different presentations and clinically, um, it can be challenging sometimes because we really want to define that personalized medicine for each one of our patients. So, it's a very important take-home message to say that not all of our patients are the same. Um, We can better define and the type of cancer they have based on a couple of features. So the next thing I'll discuss is sort of what we call the grade of the tumor and some genetics that we've learned about that can help us define the management. And then we'll go through some brief overviews of the systemic therapies, trials on the horizon, as you discussed, Carolyn, and then um, quality of life, which is incredibly important for our patients. So as I said, what's in a name? Um, Neuroendocrine tumors can actually develop anywhere in the body. The most common place is somewhere in the GI tract or in the lung. And where the cancer can start can really help us better understand what types of therapies could be considered. So the first thing we always say is, where did the cancer start? Once we know that, the second most important thing we ask is what the cancer looks like under the microscope. So our pathologists will actually tell us two things about the cancer. One is what we call the architecture of what the cells look like. And so they define that as either well-differentiated or poorly-differentiated. And then the second thing they tell us about is the grade of the tumor. So we measure the grade by a parameter called KI-67. And so um, those are very, very important to us. And for the sake of today's discussion, we're not discussing poorly-differentiated neuroendocrine cancers. Unfortunately, those tumors, a little bit more uh, aggressively, and those are treated with cytotoxic or what we call traditional cancer chemotherapies. So, for the sake of today's discussion, I'm going to be discussing well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors, although poorly differentiated neuroendocrine cancers are um, treated with platinum-based therapies, and we do have trials, including immunotherapy studies, for that type of um, neuroendocrine cancer. So, getting back to the well-differentiated tumors, those, again, can be also defined by the grade of tumor. So, if the KI-67 is less than... Um, overall survival on the order hopefully of many years. But the low-grade tumors, again, that's the biology of the tumor that tends to be the best. And there's nothing our patients did or didn't do to have an intermediate or higher-grade tumor. It's just the way that the cancer starts off and develops. So um, if it's a KI-67 of 3 to 20, we consider that the intermediate grade, and then greater than 20 is higher grade. And again, all of those can be well-differentiated under the microscope. So that gives us just a better understanding that, for example, if a patient's a higher-grade tumor, we may start therapies a little bit earlier, where sometimes in patients with a low-grade tumor, we even may even watch the tumor and not necessarily do things right away. Um, So what else do we need? So the grade and the pathology is very important. The second thing we need to do is good imaging. So what imaging do we need for neuroendocrine cancers? So traditional, what we call cross-sectional imaging, which is either a CT or MRI, are still the way to measure the disease. And so in patients where um, we can surgically remove it, that is when it's a localized to only one place, surgery is the curative way to do this. Um, in patients with disease that has spread, we like to follow that those um, patients with either what we call CT triphasic, which is a certain way to look at the liver, or MRI, The new sort of test on the horizon that many have probably heard about is the so called gallium 68 dotatate, which is a type of PET scan. So, unlike a CT or MRI, this PET scan can help us see if the tumor is located um, in places that maybe a CT or MRI wouldn't necessarily image. But more importantly, it looks for what we call a sematostatin receptor on the tumor. So, if the patient's tumor has a sematostatin receptor, the tumor will quote, light up like a Christmas tree. So you can see from head to toe anywhere where there's this bright tumors, we have a a suggestion that the tumor is located there. So it helps us find the extent of the disease. But more importantly, the presence of that receptor now allows us to give treatments that can target that receptor, which we'll talk about. So we always like in patients with advanced unresectable disease to get a gallium 68 dotatate at baseline. We do not traditionally follow patients with dotatate scans. It is a lot of radiation. Um, you know, if you need it, we will do that. But if good quality CT or MRI imaging that shows the disease, we would prefer to use that over a dotatate scan. The exception for that is if patients, for example, only have bone disease, where you can't see it so well on regular imaging, then we would do the DOTA tape. Um, what about the role of biomarkers? So there's a lot out there on, do I need to get my chromogranin A, or pancreatic peptide? There's all these different types of, bi- unfortunately, most of them do not help us treat patients. We would never, ever treat or change treatment based on a biomarker lab. We only change treatment in this disease if on imaging or on dotatate, the scan shows that it's growing. Because many of our biomarkers, unfortunately, are just not as good as we would like them to be, and there are many false positive readings, And so therefore, the biomarker really cannot, it really doesn't help us change treatment, Some folks use chromogranin A to help trend the disease, but again, in the absence of any role of looking for the primary, um, in the past, we would do things like capsule endoscopy and other things if you didn't know where the cancer started. Um, With the advent of the dotatate scans, we have picked up a lot more tumors that we wouldn't have necessarily seen. So the role of additional tests to, quote, look for the primary is a lot more limited now with the advent of the dotatate scans. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about the role of, um, in advanced disease, what treatment options we have, what we call, um, what would be what therapies we use. So unlike any other disease, that really demands a, what we call, multidisciplinary team approach. Because surgeons, as well as interventional radiologists, medical oncologists, endocrinologists, and gastroenterologists can really help our patients live longer and better and many of our patients will receive many different treatments over time. Really no one standard treatment. Uh, unfortunately, it really takes a personalized approach for each patient. However, um, in general... The somatostatin analogs, that is octreotide or lanreotide, tend to be what I call our first string players. So those are the best drugs that we have in terms of the very uh, minimal side effects as compared to other therapies and generally work very well to control the cancer. It doesn't usually shrink the cancer, but definitely can help control the disease and prevent it from spreading and growing. So, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but what about in patients um, that have disease that's incurable, Um, most of our patients do have um, most of the disease in the liver. So, unlike other cancers, um, we do a lot of what we call liver-directed therapy, um, something called embolization or chemoembolization and radioembolization. And just briefly, unfortunately, there's no randomized controlled trials to say which one of those embolizations is better. Um, they really are um, all with very high response rates, meaning the ability to shrink the tumor is very high in all of them. And it really is dependent on the comfort level of the interventional radiologist in terms of what treatment should be done. So this is one of those. The expert tells you um, in general, it tells us which one is safer to do. Um, some have a good chance of um, shrinking the disease in the liver. So getting back to the medical management of these patients, um, again, as I said before, what I call our first string players or the best therapies in the first line setting is generally somatostatin analogs that are lanreotide or octreotide. Both of these drugs biochemically in terms of the active component of the drug is identical. We have no data comparing the two different somatostatin analogs. So we really don't know, quote, which one is better. Um, And because they're the same, we absolutely other. So you can't really use one when the other um, has progression. the Lanreotide does have the FDA approval for GI, um, nets, pancreatic, small bowel, large bowel. Um, we have a very important study right now that's going on in lung net that you may hear about later that's testing the role of Lanreotide for lung nets because it's not yet FDA approved there, um, and that study is ongoing. So, um, but what do we do when, um, the somatostatin analogs, um, stop working or if the disease starts to grow? Well, then we start in the first place to give us a better understanding of what treatment options should be considered um, after progression on somatostatic therapy is one option if the tumor is growing in the liver. If it started in the pancreas, we have two targeted therapies that we could also consider. Targeted therapies are two oral drugs, um, not traditional chemotherapies but go after certain receptors. So one is called Sinitinib and the other is called Everolimus. And although we never compared these two drugs head-to-head, there's trials suggested that both of them probably have about the same efficacy, that is, that they both controlled the cancer for almost a year, about 11 months, as compared to about five months for a placebo. So both of these drugs are very good treatment options for pancreatic nets. Traditional chemotherapies, including the drug called Temidar, um, are also very active in pancreatic nets. If the primary, however, started somewhere in the GI tract or the lung, Everlimus is approved for that. That's another targeted therapy that one can consider, but Sinitinib, again, is only approved... And then very, very importantly, a new drug that was just sort of brought on to our armamentarium in terms of additional drugs to be considered is the so-called peptide receptor radiotherapy. So if you remember early on, I said that the role of a dotatate scan is it helps us find if this receptor is tumor, and in about 85% of our patients, that receptor is present. And so I tell my patients it's like a lock and a key. If the tumor has this receptor, which I'm going to call the lock, you can use the so-called key, which is either a somatostatin analog to bind to that, or this peptide receptor radiotherapy, which is a tiny little bit of radiation tagged to a somatostatin analog cousin called octriotate. And when you take this manostatin protein and you link it to radiation, you can give it by IV. And the pivotal study that showed benefit was something called the NETTER-1. This was only in small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, but they randomized patients to get this PRRT, which was four cycles, 8 weeks apart, and then you're done. And they compared that to very high dose octreotide. And in our world, it was um a very successful um, result in that it was a home run and in that three years, most of the patients on the PRRT arm still had disease stability. So that is a very positive study for the world of oncology and we were thrilled about that and that led to its FDA approval not only in small bowel, which is what the study was in, but also other types of neuroendocrine tumors as well that are positive, meaning octreoscan positive or gallium 68 positive. So we now have that drug as an FDA approved um, option. Um, it does unfortunately cause very rare but very, very serious um, leukemia or MDS and leukemia. So we have to be incredibly careful on when we use these therapies. I often say that many of our patients will do well in spite of us because these cancers can be more indolent. So it's not a question of if we treat, it's often when we treat. So this is a great drug to consider, but we absolutely don't want to use it too early. In terms of other trials on the horizon, so PRRT is one type of radiolabel therapy. There are other types of radiolabel therapies um, that are now sort of version 2.0, something called JR11 uh, trials, also is trying to put it all together, of saying what about PRRT plus another therapy? Um, And then other trials that I think are very, very important are trying to focus on what we call sequencing of treatment. So, after somatostan analogs, what should be done, uh, what should we be given um, next, and why? A big struggle with that is because of our patients um, that are so heterogeneous, it's very hard to know for any one person. Um, But I think, in summary, um, what's incredibly important is that our patients, uh, it's a slower growing cancer than other cancers. So, we have um, the important Uh, rule to ensure that our patients are living as long as they possibly can, but that their quality of life is equally, if not more, important to us. So the drugs that we're considering in the timing of that are always focusing on those two components, that is quality and quantity of life. So I'm happy to answer any questions later, but that's... Dr.
1: Um, Reedy Lagunas, that was really outstanding, a wonderful way to start the permacute. And our next speaker is Dr. Christine Hahn. Dr. Hahn is Assistant Professor of Oncology, Director, Small Cell Lung Cancer Therapeutics, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And Dr. Hahn is going to be addressing um, neuroendocrine tumors of the lung. My pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hahn.
3: Hi. um Hi. Hi, thank you very much for that introduction. Dr. Reed Lagoon, thank you very much for that wonderful comprehensive introduction. Uh, you made my part very easy to do. I'll be speaking specifically on neuroendocrine tumors of the lung. Um, in general, they are considered relatively uncommon tumors. They do comprise or account for about 25% of all neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, these tend to be more common in females than males, and there's no link to smoking. Um, With respect to terminology, I think we've probably all experienced in medicine, there are how we describe lung neuroendocrine tumors, just in case you hear me refer to uh, one or the other term uh, during this this discussion today. Um, We also uh, grade uh, lung neuroendocrine tumors as low-grade and intermediate-grade, um, and this really helps to distinguish them from a different type of neuroendocrine tumor of the lung, um, which is small cell lung cancer or even large cell neuroendocrine, which are considered poorly differentiated and not the topic of discussion today. Um, also, uh, in the lung world, we've also held on to these terms, typical and atypical, which correspond to low-grade and intermediate-grade neuroendocrine tumors, um, so you might read about that or see them um, described uh, in in various lung uh, lung neuroendocrine tumor studies. Uh, there's finally another condition called DIPNEC, uh, diffuse idiopathic pulmonary neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia. Sort of rolls off the tongue. Um, this is uh, usually a typical carcinoid, but um, in the broader context of uh, small amounts of neuroendocrine cells seen on imaging or on P, um, where um, there are very small little tumorlets of neuroendocrine tumors. Um, this is um, more rare than either uh, typical or atypical carcinoma of the lung. Um, in contrast to GI neuroendocrine tumors, um, we, also, uh, use the mitotic, uh, we also use the uh, mitotic, we also use mitosis per high powered field in distinguishing. Uh, lower-grade or intermediate-grade neuroendocrine tumors, as opposed to KI-67 um, that Dr. Reedy Lagunes mentioned, uh, though we are sort of shifting in that presentation. Most lung neuroendocrine tumors arise um, in the proximal airways, um, meaning that um, arise uh, in near the trachea or where the trachea branches off, um, and so patients may present with symptoms related to that or related to compression of the airway, such as cough or wheeze, uh, sometimes recurrent pneumonia. Um, whereas 25% are located uh, more peripherally of the lung and may be found um, incidentally on imaging. Um, Nearly all of the lung neuroendocrine tumors are sporadic, and, again, they're not associated with um, smoking exposure or tobacco exposure. Uh, When patients present to the clinic, uh, they can present related to the location of their tumor, or sometimes uh, they have the capability of producing Uh, different kinds of active hormones or peptides, which could manifest as uh, certain symptoms. Uh, More commonly, and this is more common in uh, non-lung neuroendocrine tumors, uh, patients may present with flushing or diarrhea or even um, some bronchospasm, um, and, um, and this is primarily related to the endocrine part of the neuroendocrine tumor. This is less common in lung neuroendocrine tumors. However, two uh, notable, ta- notable uh, syndromes that can, happen, can uh, present more often in patients with lung neuroendocrine tumors are Cushing syndrome, which is an overproduction of uh, steroid hormones, and that in those cases patients may have high blood pressure, um, high blood sugar levels, um, and uh, un- sort of unexpected um, weight changes, um, as well as acromegaly, which is essentially an overproduction of growth hormone. In, in either case, these are exceedingly rare, but uh, lung neuroendocrine tumors are actually the most com- one of the most common causes of each of these um, and can be, the, can be the first reason that someone might seek medical attention um, and then be found. As doctor Reedy Arridi-Laguna has mentioned, we, we use CT scans. Most uh, This is the most useful for really getting a good image of the lungs. Um, it is, um, and it can also um, help us understand what lymph nodes or what local lymph nodes may be involved. Um, CT scans are very good at being able to um, pick up lymph nodes in the chest in particular. It doesn't always mean that um, an enlarged lymph node in the chest doesn't always mean that it's involved with tumor um, and definitely and requires additional either imaging or direct uh, examination uh, to be sure. Um, and we, we do use somatostatin receptor-based imaging. About Over 60% of lung neuroendocrine tumors um, express the somatostatin receptor, um, and previously we would use octreotide imaging. Um, uh, to to look at the expression, Um, but uh, we also more often use um, the gallium uh, dotate PET scans. Um, For us, uh, because lung neuroendocrine tumors can also go to the liver, um, MRI can be very useful, especially for imaging uh, the liver. In terms of treatment, we follow, I'm sorry, in terms of staging, uh, lung neuroendocrine tumors follow the same staging system as uh, other primary lung tumors, which is we use the AJCC, or American Joint Council on Cancer, 8th um, edition, um, and to uh, use tumor size, um, nodal uh, involvement, and uh, presence of metastases to, to determine whether uh, someone has an earlier stage, stage 1, 2, or um stage three or metastatic um, neuron For localized disease, uh, meaning uh, pr- a primary tumor in the lung uh, with some limited um, metastases either to lymph nodes um, or regionally, uh, we recommend surgical resection, Following, usually following a paradigm we use for other lung cancers. Uh, that would uh, include complete resection of the entire tumor. In cases, resection is sufficient to control of cancer. Uh, for and after after complete resection, then patients can be followed. Um, there is uh, there's not really a consensus on how often to follow, but you, we usually use CT scans uh, to look for any um, sort of anatomic um, evidence of of cancer recurrence or um, or to determine that there's no evidence of cancer recurrence. In in comparison to other types of lung cancers um, where we would often use adjuvant chemotherapy, um, that we, we do not generally recommend chemotherapy or adjuvant therapy after complete resection of carcinoid. We feel that once uh, the carcinoid tumor is completely removed, um, it, it's uh, the best program is to watch um, because the likelihood of the cancer returning uh, is rather low and we don't know that chemotherapy actually changes that. Um, and, and that the, the risks of giving chemotherapy, which can cause their own sets of side effects, likely outweigh any benefit. Uh, for uh, carcinoma patients who have inoperably, inoperable or locally uh, advanced disease so uh, or are not candidates for surgery, uh, we can often use radiation or a combination of chemo chemoradiation uh, to treat their cancer. These would be um, primarily patients with stage 3 disease or we call locally advanced uh, NETs. And again, the surveillance afterwards would be the same, which is uh, usually CTs on a, a pretty regular basis, maybe twice a year. Then we then spread it out for therapy for advanced disease. Um, we follow, we often follow paradigms that have been established for GI neuroendocrine uh, tumors. I, I agree with Dr. Uh, Reedy Lagunes that we we usually recommend, um, if anything, um, an octreotide-based uh, treatment. Um, most often, uh, lanreotide or a long-acting octreotide, uh, based on the results seen with um, in GI neuroendocrine tumors. Um, for liver-dominant disease, um, we um, local therapy is a very it's a very uh, common option for us to recommend, and we do this in in uh, in collaboration with our interventional radiologists who can deliver either um, chemotherapy or perform uh, radioembolization or radiofrequency ablation for specific sites in the liver that may be involved with cancer. Uh, for patients who need therapy beyond octreotide-directed um, uh, therapy or, um, or beyond the liver, um, we, we can offer systemic therapy. Again, following the paradigms of GI neuroendocrine tumors, um, everolimus. Um, as previously mentioned, is FDA-approved. Um, and this is a pill form of therapy um, that blocks a specific pathway uh, that, that's active in neuroendocrine tumors. And um, in, in larger studies looking at all patients with uh, neuroendocrine tumors, uh, this afforded significant stable disease. And even looking at the subset of patients with lung neuroendocrine tumors, again, uh, patients um, had a significant benefit in terms of uh, disease stabilization Other options after everolimus or um, or octreotide analogs, or for patients whose tumor seems to be growing uh, a little more rapidly, we often use more traditional chemotherapy. Historically, we've used chemotherapy that was uh, more in line with uh, chemo that we use that we recommend for more aggressive uh, neuroendocrine tumors, such as small cell lung cancer. However, um, based on more recent studies and some success seen with other agents such as temozolomide, another oral chemotherapy agent, or capcitabine, an oral chemotherapy agent, um, we are, at least in our practice we tend to rec- recommend a combination of these medications as um, they seem to be well tolerated and can really afford good tumor control. And uh, finally, in terms of systemic therapy, we were also very excited about the uh, the results of the radio-labeled somatostatin analog. Netter one focused on uh, gastroenteropancreatic nets, um, and the approval is specific uh, for those neuroendocrine tumors uh, but other studies have shown that um, that th- this agent is active in uh, patients with lung neuroendocrine tumor. We hope that um, as that data more data is generated uh, this will be uh, this treatment will be more available for patients with lung neuroendocrine tumors um there are there are other agents that we're interested, we're excited about in, in clinical evaluation uh, for lung neuroendocrine tumors. Um, actually, for neuroendocrine tumors in general, um, there has been a um, antibody drug conjugate called rovalpituzumab uh that is directed against a specific molecule that is present on neuroendocrine cancers. Uh, this agent, and, 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 and this, uh, it's an antibody drug conjugate, so the antibody targets this molecule called DLL3 and um, is linked to a very potent chemotherapy agent. Um, and there was some early promise that this uh, was effective uh, um, in small cell lung cancer, um, and further studies uh, with this drug, we also call it rovati for short, um, shows that DLL3 is expressed in a wide range of tumors, mostly neuroendocrine tumors, and so one uh, potential um, Application of T might be in DLL3-positive carcinoids. Uh, this would allow for some selection; only tumors that were positive for DLL3 um, would be ones we'd recommend that kind of therapy for. Um, but may lead to um, other other avenues of research, um, treatments, and uh, and maybe even combinations. I think I'm also supposed to touch on uh, symptom management, and and I. Think I will uh start with a couple comments and then I, I I imagine that there'll be a broader conversation about this. Um but um uh, symptom management uh ranges from specific um anatomic um symptoms related to uh to carcinoid and, and um its its location. So as Dr. Laguna's Laguna has mentioned um Carcinoid can go to the bone, and if that if that ends up causing some bone pain, um, then there are ways to to palliate that. Uh, Radiation can often provide relief of bone metastases. Uh, Carcinoid is uh, fairly unique among cancers because it is a very endocrinologically active uh, tumor and can produce different types of hormone, uh, cause uh, symptoms including diarrhea and flushing um, in the case of um, lung nets uh, that can cause overproduction of cortisol, which can cause high blood pressure um, and uh, actually fatigue. Um, the management of carcinoid syndrome can be managed um, in in various ways. These are all sort of under the umbrella of what we call carcinoid syn- uh, syndrome. The somatostatin analogs, as we mentioned earlier, octreotide, lanreotide, um, can actually be quite effective in helping to uh, mitigate some of the production of these hormones and therefore symptoms related to the hormones um, and um, if the and if the hormone production continues or the symptoms related to hormone production continues even despite the somatostatin analogs, uh, then liver directed therapy can can often help with managing some of these symptoms um, as a uh, involvement of the liver is often associated with um, an increased frequency of um, carcinoid syndrome. And then beyond that, uh, the goal would be to really manage the overall uh, cancer progression in order to um, directly um, affect the the abilities, hormones and cause these symptoms. Um, As uh, as Dr. Reedy Lagune mentioned, um, I think the ultimate goal is that we understand that each patient um, had often um, has their own presentation and own natural history um, with this cancer, and our goals are to really be able to personalize some of these, ma- these uh, treatments um, in terms of maximizing quality of life and offering uh, treatments that will help control the cancer and symptoms related to their cancer. And I think I will stop.
1: Very, very excellent. So I know there will be questions for you during the q and A. am going to say a few words about cancer care services, and I'm going to take questions, so please... Get ready to ask your questions and prepare them. And um, yeah, we'll explain to you how to ask questions. But I just want to say a few words in terms of getting access to some practical and social and emotional help in dealing with your endocrine and cancer in general. So, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we have a staff of um, oncology social workers, all of them master's level trained. And they're here to um, answer your questions. We do have a hope line that you can call us at. You'll get your evaluation. You'll get all the phone numbers and all the websites that we'll be giving out. Um, so um, it's a wonderful resource for you to contact. Um, also, we do a lot of our staff work with people individually, providing counseling, helping them to think about dealing with their um, nurses, their, their cancer um, talking with their children sometimes, um, talking to employer, questions that people have just in terms of living with, with uh, tumors or with cancer. We also provide help to family members um, and, um, and caregivers. And we also have a number of different types of support groups. So we have telephone support groups and we have over 120 online support groups. And the online support groups are particularly attractive to people both in the United States and internationally as well because they don't have any specific time frame in terms of when you can post. They're all moderated by an oncology social worker who does respond to posts on a daily basis. But nevertheless, in the middle of the night, wherever you are in the world, you can post your question. You do get screened for that. There's information about that on our website, and lots of people find them helpful. We have them for caregivers, for people living with cancer, for specific types of cancer, so it's it's a wonderful resource. Um, so um uh probably just a good go to place for just getting some support, just that kind of support that you might need in just coping with um the day to day uh nuances of living with, with um with uh, NET, or with, uh with neuroendocrine tumors or with cancer. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, then Ayala to uh, um, uh, explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And our speakers are all on board. Bring our speakers on board as well. And um, let's see how many of your questions we can take. We'll take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions question, at the end of the call, I'll tell you all how to get your questions answered. So to start with, um, Ayala?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then 1.
1: So I have a question from one of our online participants, and this would be for Dr. Um, just to start with, uh, for Dr. Rita um, So can um, this be passed on to my children? Should I have them screened? Could you say
2: something about that? Um. That's a really great question. So the most of our patients with this cancer, the vast majority, do not have an inherited gene that's responsible for the cancer to develop. We don't understand why these it's not associated with smoking um, and other sort of traditional environmental risk factors don't seem to pan out for our disease. Um, We did do a study in pancreatic neuroendocrine where we just decided to test everyone in the study for inherited mutations to see if that were responsible. And it was a little bit higher than we expected. It was about 15% of our patients did have an inherited gene um, that could have been responsible. Um, so if that was for pancreatic net. But for the vast majority of carcinoid or neuroendocrine cancers, um, it's not a uh, what we call germline. If you did have a strong family history of um, some type of cancer, however, I would discuss this and discuss the possibility of being tested. And only if that patient turns out to have an inherited mutation, would we ever test the children? So our patients are the map, if you will, to find a mutation, and then only if we find that do we go to patients' immediate family members and then look for that actual gene. Excellent.
1: Thank you. And um, uh, Dr. Han, do you want to add anything to that question?
3: Uh, No, I, I agree. We have not found evidence that there is an inherited form of lung nerves. uh there are the um, um endocrine uh, uh, i guess syndromes um where uh, families might be found to have multiple different types of endocrine type tumors in their family what we call MEN it's a hereditary condition uh but often uh these types of uh neuroendocrine tumors are not the presenting or the major component of that um and okay. so
0: um
3: so we wouldn't we wouldn't initiate a uh, genetic screen or recommend uh, family members get screened uh, based on a single family member having um, a neuroendocrine tumor.
1: I totally agree. Yes, and, actually, and along that line, there is actually um, there's a, a question which you probably have answered in some way. But if a family member has a known MEN-1 syndrome, what are the testing screening recommendations for family for other family members? Does family mean first? Degree relatives only second degree. So, that's, so thank you for
2: you could just yeah. I mean the, the MEN one, and um, again we just have to be a little bit careful because a lot of times now people are getting genetically tested by places such as Foundation One and another. Um, avenues to get the tumor itself sequenced. And if MEN comes out in the tumor, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the inherited MEN1 gene. So, um, you know, MEN1 can get damaged over time and not necessarily have the MEN1 syndrome um, like we're talking about. So... um, If patients have a strong family history of endocrine cancers or um, cancers of the um, different glands, then we definitely would recommend it. Um, The vast majority of our patients don't. Um, The quick first step that people normally do is they check a calcium for patients with MEN1 because they have a very high calcium often. Um, But again, if a family member, for example, your mom has MEN1 syndrome and inherited mutation, then then they look for that exact mutation in the children. Excellent. And, um,
0: and a question oh, sorry, Caroline. If oh, I can
3: yes, interrupt, yes, I would oh, just say, please. oh yeah. So I would just say, as you as you sort of talked about uh, supportive si- um, uh, systems in place, I do think that this is questions like this, or concerns, or concerns about a family history, are great questions to bring up to even some of the genetic counselors that we often have Definitely. at our cancer centers. Uh, they can really sort of sift through and go through family history, provide reassurance, um, also um, help direct resources. Uh, when, when a further evaluation should really be done.
1: Well, oh, that's such an important point. Thank you. Um, that's excellent. And, and I know that some centers have genetic counselors and some don't, and we actually... Um, on some of our programs, have had genetic counselors, have given us a reference, so we will try to include that in the. When all of you get the evaluation form after the program, we'll include if there isn't um, a genetic counselor in your setting, how to um, access um, genetic counseling um, that are members of a rep- very uh, excellent organization, so that you could, um, or you can actually ask your healthcare team as well. I guess that is that what Dr. Would you look at this? Is that what patients usually do if they don't have if the center doesn't offer it. That that, that would that would be the protocol best to follow. That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um and we have a question from one of our another from one of our online participants. Um and uh I'm gonna ask Dr. Han if you could address this question. It sounds like the comments. Uh
3: well, um actually if I can I, I think it's actually probably best for me to defer that that comment to Dr. Reedy I can take that one, Is Dr. that okay? Helton. Absolutely. <laughs> that <one's> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. no on the country. Yes. <laughs> okay. No, you're um So, it,
2: yeah, it, we... Um, And I think it's actually an important point, because this study was done in small bowel neuroendocrine, and um, the FDA did give it approval for um, types of neuroendocrine, but really has not been tested in lung um, at all. And so um, there was a 2%, what we call complete response rate in the earlier studies for PRRT, complete response means that on the study, the tumor went away radiographically, meaning the CAT scan all of a sudden didn't show any cancer, thankfully, from the treatment. But cures have not been reported, meaning just because it was a complete response does not mean that we had all the microscopic disease. And to date, we have no data whatsoever to suggest that this is a cure. And that's one of the reasons why we have to be so very careful on the timing of when we give this. Thing. And um, although the treatment in generally is well-tolerated, the very rare but very serious side effects make us all very, very nervous that we do not want patients to just randomly get this therapy unless they absolutely need it. And so, in our world, the reasons why patients need this treatment would be disease progression after somatostatin analog therapy, so no one should ever receive PRRT up front, except for very rare exceptions. Um, If they have very high tumor burden that's causing symptoms, or like Dr. Hahn said, if the patient has a functional tumor that's um, causing more hormone secretions after somatostatin analog therapy. So the three reasons why we give treatments is disease either from the hormone or from the tumor itself causing discomfort. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice. Excellent. I
1: hope that's helpful. And we also do encourage all of our participants to ask questions, of course, to go back to your Treating Health team with the information you've learned today. That's really important. And this question for Dr. Hahn. Can interventional radiology um, do anything for bone metastases in NETs? Um,
3: interventional radiology. Um, so, you know, I the, i we don't often, at least in our group, we don't often um, ablate uh, bone metastases. We find that conventional radiation um, is sufficient to control uh, pain for bone metastases. Um, I have to say that the time that we interface most often with interventional radiology uh, with uh, with bone metastases um, is uh, possibly spinal disease. If a patient has had a, a significant fracture of their spine, um, in that case we can ask them to essentially cement or perform what we call kyphoplasty uh, to the site. Um, but aside from that, but we do interact for um, parenchymal or lung specific sites. So if there is, um, if a patient has a tumor that we think um, is active or causing symptoms, um, and they are not a candidate for surgery and perhaps uh, the, the site is not amenable to conventional radiation, we can often ask interventional radiologists um, to directly try to ablate that tumor site. Um, there's a, they can get to most tumors uh, within the lung parenchyma. Um, Dr. Rie Lagunas, can you think of another way that we use interventional radiology for bone metastases?
2: No, I think you're absolutely right. We do it for the kyphoplasty if there's a small fracture there, as you said so beautifully. Otherwise, um, the intervention radiologists really play a very big part of the liver directed there. Excellent. Thank you.
1: For our online um, participants. Um- So what is the – oh, actually, the question is, why is it so difficult to diagnose – why are endocrine, uh, neuroendocrine tumors so difficult to diagnose for that? um, But Dr. Reedy, let let's start.
2: Yeah, it's a really uh, great question. I I think there's a couple of reasons. One, um, our tumors tend to be slower growing, and so they don't cause um, symptoms, per se, that would give us cardinal red flags that something needs to be – you'll have some bleeding. For neuroendocrine cancers, very often they can be there um, in an unsettling way, sometimes many years, and we don't know it because they're growing so slowly that they're not causing any signs or symptoms. About 15% of the time, patients can have hormone secreting symptoms, but we get fooled. So they will have a lot of diarrhea, for example, with the carcinoid syndrome, and people will discount it as irritable bowel syndrome or some sort of inflammatory for a very long time, and nobody thought about the so-called zebra of a neuroendocrine cancer. Um, So I think that it's partly that we need to get our... Um, sort of education on the docket of making sure that gastroenterologists and internists think when they have these symptoms, but I think it's also the lack of symptoms that really don't allow us to um, sort of think about this and, and give a diagnosis. Having said that, the number of new cancers um, that are neuroendocrine, and that's not because there's an epidemic of this cancer, but rather we are picking them up earlier. Um, So patients are getting CAT scans for a lot more reasons nowadays, and endoscopies, thankfully, both by endoscopy and by imaging. So we're hoping and expecting that that's going to improve outcomes for our patients and improve overall survival, but we haven't figured that out yet. So um, earlier, um, we are, I think, doing so by more scans and more endoscopies.
1: Excellent, thank you. Um, and Dr. Han, do you want to comment as well, or?
3: Uh, actually, I just to reiterate uh, some of the things that Dr. Reedy Laguna has mentioned. You know, these, uh, f- especially for uh, you know, in uh, since I'm in the lung cancer world, uh, for patients with lung cancer, we hear a lot about lung cancer screening. Um, can this be applied more broadly to other types of primary uh, lung tumors? And has, there's no association sh- association with smoking. Um and because uh, i think often these patients are younger than our average uh cancer patient, there hasn't been a good screening tool that's been shown to benefit benefit uh carcinoid patients, and so we don't we don't yet have a way agree that a lot of these are gone incidentally
1: and, and um i actually a question now for dr um, han um this is an online question um one point four centimeter surgery, a two-millimeter non-calcified left upwards. One NET cell was found in a thoracic, all the specifics, but if you could just comment on this. Um, right, so the other side
3: uh, nodule was not biopsy, is that correct?
1: Um, only what she's presented here, so Yes.
3: Yeah, so um, it, it's hard to say. I, I think that nodules are, are a little more common uh, than than we would expect. And, of course, when someone starts getting routine uh, CT evaluations, um, they are quite common. Um, the likelihood, I, I would say, is still rather low, um, and the recommendation would be to follow after the resection of the right middle lobe nodule and the lymph nodes, um, but to actually follow that other nodule pretty closely. Um, if it grows or becomes a minimal to biopsy, um, then uh, then either biopsy or or remove it. Um, it also probably depends on the size. Um, did they mention the size on the other side? I'm sorry. They
1: did, actually they said correct nodule remains in the upper lead. and uh, uh, so, so there's yeah. one on the upper it doesn't say the size.
3: Um, yeah, part of it might be size. So you, you, uh, Another option could be to if it's large enough, um, it has to meet the so the criteria for detection uh would be a uh a dotatate PET scan, the gallium dotatate PET scan, uh to see if this could be the same, um, a similar tumor. Um I think the likelihood is, is relatively low.
1: Um, actually the person has just sent another email mm-hmm. saying that yeah. it's two millimeters actually.
3: Oh yeah, no. Okay. I would watch that. Don't two millimeters. <laughs> 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 two
1: Mm is enough. Yeah.
3: Very unlikely. It might be gone
2: next time. Yes, <laughs> exactly.
1: And actually, could you comment on it, because this is a really um, an expert area of um, oncology. So, um, I, uh, we often um, say things like these in treating people with neuroendocrine tumors, and I wonder if you would just comment on that in general, just the um, uh, whether it be a major and designated center or. Center where there are people who have that expertise with, that i'm assuming that's very it's important for many of our calls, so it's a question that often comes up and I often end up asking it because it is um uh, probably important for people to be aware of uh expertise of the person they're seeing.
2: recommend that um a neuroendocrine expert at least weigh in on the treatments um, and then get the therapy locally close to home. Um, Because there's just not great guidelines um, for our cancer, not because there's not many, many people working um, very hard in the disease, but rather there's just a lot of um, different components that lead us to make different decisions, as I tried to outline earlier in the talk. And so... um, Often, um, you know, for for many other diseases I take care of, for example, colon cancer, it's pretty strict guidelines on what happens in the first, second, and third line settings, and we just don't have that type of data in our cancer. So I would highly recommend that someone in the field, it doesn't have to be an NCCN cancer um, designated center, but rather someone that has an an interest in the field. Um, It can be hard sometimes to know what that means. How do you know if it's truly an expert or not? One way to potentially think about it is if they have clinical trials, that means that there is an interest there in this cancer. And so that is sort of a surrogate way to say that that may be a nice or an important place to, to go and to, to see that person to weigh in on what therapy should be used and when. Excellent. Thank you.
1: And we have um, a question. Um, actually, this, one, this will be our last, I believe, our last question Um and that is um, for Dr. Um, Rida Lagunas. Are there any CAR-T trials for NETs?
2: So the University of Pennsylvania is trying to work on CAR T cells for NETs. Um, For CAR T cells to work, you really need what we call an antigen um, or something to present to the immune system to then attack um, the cancer itself. Um, We have not yet defined that clearly for neuroendocrine, but um, the work is going on there. It will probably take several years to develop that if they are successful. I think one of the struggles, though, is in NETs. Um, there have already been some trials with immunotherapy, and we have not um, had the benefit that others have experienced, like Dr. Han has for certain types of lung cancers. So, small cell, you could talk about this much better than I, um, has some shown some signal. And in neuroendocrine carcinomas, we're testing the role of immunotherapy for GI neuroendocrine tumors. However, um, the studies that have been done with immunotherapy to date have not shown positive results. Unfortunately, I don't know, Dr. Han, if you want to talk a little bit about lung and uh, small cell.
3: Sure. So, um, in small cell uh, lung cancer, which is a poorly differentiated neuroendocrine tumor, there has been uh, some promising results with. Uh, immunotherapy um some of the more common ones that have been studied include uh, nivolumab also known as opdivo um ipilimumab um, also known as yervoy um, and um uh, pembrolizumab also known as keytruda i think the uh the uh, the most active combination right now appears to be nivolumab and ipilimumab, and what we're learning is that, you know, we may again be able to try to personalize the use of immunotherapy, meaning that subsets of patients with small cell are the ones that are most likely to respond and get benefit. Um, we are very interested in looking at immunotherapy and carcinoma. We understand that no one treatment is going to um, be effective for all patients with carcinoma, and, and, and as Dr. Lagun has mentioned and with her studies looking at sort of personalized approaches and genomic studies of uh, carcinoid tumors, we think that there is a tremendous amount to be learned that there may be certain uh, vulnerabilities or sensitivities to uh, immune-based therapies versus targeted therapies like Everolimus. Um, I I think the goal for us is to be able to study this cancer a little deeper, uh, looking at the combination of um, nivolumab plus ipilimumab in carcinoid patients. Um, We're very interested to see. How the tumor, how the how the tumors respond, um, how the patients feel on the therapy, um, but also um, if exposure to any of these immunotherapies cause specific tumor tumor-specific changes um, in immune cell infiltrates, um, and um, and I think this gets back to uh, for all patients who have this diagnosis, I think it does help to to see someone at a at a center that has um, a focus on neuroendocrine tumors. At least to get a sense of what the landscape is and and sort of how um, how many of us see uh, future directions for therapeutic options. Excellent.
1: Well, I have to say this has been an outstanding call. Our speakers have been just wonderful, and all of you who've asked such really great questions have really enhanced the call today. Now I know there are more questions and of course um we're going to be wrapping up very soon so I want to thank our speakers. I also um want to thank our participants of course being on the call today. Um and um I um and I also um want to let you know that if you still have questions, which I know you do, because I can see them, um, that there are places to get your questions answered. And I, first of all, of course, you want to go back to your treating health care team. They are, of course, they know you the best. They have all your records. That's really important. But I know many of you like to go other places to get information. And so we often recommended calling the National Cancer Institute Hundred four two two six two three seven, and you'll get that information um, in chat feature, www.cancer.gov. Anyone in any part of the United States or the world can post a question on their website, on the live chat feature, and um, one of their information specialists will really research the database and get you information that, that you need. And so that can be very, very helpful to you all in getting really credible information. We also, in all of our programs, collaborate with many other organizations, and all of them have wonderful resources for you to access. So um, we will definitely be sure that you have that information as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the call today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. And we do recognize that there are moments in the day, in the evening, um, different times that you actually um do may feel alone. Um and you also may feel as if you don't know anybody else with um with um, NET. And now you've learned on this program, there are lots of people on this call today, so there are lots of people out there with NET, and they may just not be in your radar screen, um, but they are there. Um, so we do want you to take advantage of the support services. Um, they're free, and Cancer Care is not the only organization that offers them. Um, many of the organizations that we partner with all have different programs that would be of great. You don't have to be in a crisis to call your health care team as well. If something's troubling you, call your healthcare team. They often do involve, they also also include staff who can help with your questions and concerns as well. We have a number of programs coming up and you'll be getting a listing of all those programs coming up, but I did want to highlight one on cancer um, survivorship, which I thought might be of interest to you all. Um, And um, from point of diagnosis, everyone's considered to be a cancer survivor. And so I would say it might be a very interesting program for you to listen to. Um, It's coming up on June 19th um, Um, same time as this program is today. And so um, if you have the time and inclination, please do go ahead and sign up for that. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.